Welcome to the Fukuma Podcast. Uh, I am joined today by Jim Lochran, who is a wine writer. Uh, he has published uh, two books, 50 Ways to Love Wine More and A Beer Drinker's Guide to Knowing and Enjoying Fine Wine. Uh, most recently, uh, put out two guides, uh, the 15-Minute Guide to Red Wine, and you can probably guess the other, the 15-Minute Guide to White Wine, uh, which are available as eBooks now, but will also be uh, in print soon enough. Jim, hi. Good afternoon. How are you? <laughs> I am great now that we're literally sitting in your barn from the <laughs> 1860s. This is the first time we've ever recorded the show. Um, first not, barn cast? This is the first barn, yeah, the first barn cast. All right. Yeah, we've never done anything like this. Uh, that's why we brought we brought the heavy artillery, we brought Chris along. Oh, look, mean cheese. <laughs> mean cheese showed up. Thank you. Um, Yes, this is really cool. So we are actually in Harpswell, Maine. Uh, we are in a barn, one direction facing essentially what looks like a farm. It <laughs> looks like uh, that's just a huge expanse of, uh, of grass big and field, trees. A big fields. Ringed with beautiful old growth trees. Yeah, what do they call those big expanses of grass? Oh, yeah, field. Yes. And, then, <laughs> and then if you look the other way, you would be looking right out onto the ocean. So this is definitely preferable than um, my, my, my studio at home lined with uh, moving blankets on the, uh, on the walls. So uh, wine. We're here to discuss wine today. I have refrained from... I've talked about wine plenty, but I've refrained from having an actual wine-centric episode. Uh, and this just kind of seemed meant to be. So I just figured we start out. Um, what is your background with, as far as when did you start writing about wine? You are a you're a Chicago native, or you lived in Chicago before this? Just no, I lived in Chicago for ten years yep. prior to moving to Maine. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> actually, my mother is from Maine, so I have a long history uh, with the state. Spent a lot of my childhood here, particularly in the summers and so forth. Uh, I got into wine a long time ago. Uh, I was kind of a casual aficionado, if you will, uh, plucking and finding good bottles that turned me on way back in college. I uh, didn't really know what I was doing, just knew if I liked it, uh, which is probably, there's a purity to that that is a wonderful thing. And probably things are more affordable, too. <laughs> much <laughs> more affordable. Trendy, yes, yeah. much more affordable. And I... Uh, Vocationally, I got into uh, uh, consulting uh, businesses and marketing, and uh, I met a doctor at a wine tasting group that we were both a uh, part of, and he had a small uh, import distribution company that he had no idea how to run. He didn't really know that much about wine. He liked it, but he didn't know anything about it. And seeing that I was in marketing and my focus was business, he asked me if I would join him and I basically became president of his company and built it from uh, being next to nothing to being uh, a pretty sweet little boutique uh, importer and distributor based in Miami. Uh, so that was uh, wonderful. That was really my first move from wine uh, being an avocation to being a vocation. And what kind of wines were you importing? Uh, the portfolio is very heavily Italian. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, we also did a lot of Austrian wines. Uh, at the time, people didn't even realize Austria made wine. Well, this was in the 1980s, or this uh, was in well, the... Well, no, no, this was no. the late 90s, or okay. early 2000s. So I was going to say, this, this is after the big um, yeah. oh, antifreeze yes. yes. controversy. This is, this is when they had stopped <laughs> drinking antifreeze yeah. and, and, and gone back to actual Yeah, they, they weren't adding juice. antifreeze to right. the Gruner Valley right. anymore. Yeah. And uh, the, the thing that was nice is that we found some wonderful uh, red Austrians as well. Uh, yeah, like Zweigaltz. beautiful and, uh, stuff. Zweigaltz and Blaufrankisch yeah, and, and uh, Pinot Noirs and so forth that were really pretty spectacular. People don't realize how well, well, particularly the whites actually from Austria, they age. I mean, they age even better than the, the Rieslings from Germany, I think. Well, get they a really do. Proper and, and I mean, personally, I prefer them because the whites or the, the Rieslings in particular from Austria tend to be bone dry, yeah. which is my preferred style. Like, is it uh, Neil or uh, N-I-G-L? Pronunciation is escaping I'm me. not sure. Is Neagle or Neil? But yeah, yeah, they, they yeah. Tend, yes, tend to be yep. drier, higher acidity, and hence better right. aging capability. Yes. Yep. Um, yeah, I feel they're like very in, nice. I mean, they're almost like, uh, like uh, Riesling from Eden Valley would be, will be when it grows up. Oh, cool. You know, yeah. Uh, so really nice stuff. Very nice stuff. Whereas Germany is uh, more reminiscent of the Finger Lakes with its terroir, <laughs> with its limestone and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, German Rieslings obviously are, well, the, the, I mean, it's the are delicious of, and yeah. wonderful things, but they do tend to uh, uh, favor that residual sugar level. It is a little out of my personal palate zone. Well, what makes so. a good Riesling, though, is when they hit that balance of acidity and sugar. Of acidity you and know, sugar, when it's not, sure. you know, I mean, when you're drinking Blue Nun, it's like a flat, it's flabby, it's, it's sweet, it's, you know, it's a certain palate. You but when what? you drink like a really great like Trockenberg Auschleser, no one needs a flabby blue nun. In nobody their needs life. a flabby blue nun. No, That's the one thing. If you take anything from this, <laughs> yes. please avoid flabby blue nuns. Uh, generally, any any blue colored wine <laughs> bottles, you can probably go ahead yes. and uh, and you use that as a red off. flag. Yeah. Um, however, uh, if you are drinking German wine uh, and you find a wine from Franken. Uh, and they, is it a Bockspiel? Yes, yes with the brown. The, the goat yep. scrotum, mm -hmm. because they used to uh, tan, uh, goat, make flasks out of goat scrotums to carry their wine in, only in, only in Franken. And generally, Sylvaner is the, uh, the grape there. Well, Sylvaner may deserve it. It, it no, may. I mean. <laughs> Usually a blending grape, but in, in Franken, it's the primary grape, and it's stored in goat scrotums. The, uh, it's Bockspiel, right? I'm not missing a... <laughs> I'm not missing a. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, on yeah. that note, we bid you adieu. <laughs> yeah, and that and that's that. Uh, I hope that I even said that right. Bockspiel, Chris, look it up. We'll we'll find uh, that. Yeah. I'm sure. I feel like I'm missing a syllable right now. Chris, do we figure out if Bockspiel was the right? Okay, well, we're just going to go ahead and say it is. <laughs> no, we're just going to plow right through this, I, I'm folks. pretty sure that it is. So you were importing Austrian wines. So I was importing yeah. Austrian, South African, uh, and Italian was the, was the, uh, were the dominant uh, wines in the portfolio. And it gave me a wonderful opportunity to go to Italy and go to Vin Italy, which is a fabulous show. It's, a, it's an endurance uh, match. It, it is really an endurance match. Yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to realize that it's your job to get up at nine o'clock in the morning and to put in an appearance at the, uh, the fairgrounds in Verona and to taste wine until five or six in the afternoon. Yeah, people think when they hear about the wine business, they're always like, oh, must be so cool. And like, 
You're like, yeah, when you go to France or, or a place and you do what, you know, some people start referring to as a death march, because it's amazing, right? You think, okay, you're just drinking wine all the time. You're having these, but like a lot on a lot of these wine tours you do it when you're in the business, a, you're drinking like, you know, 30 to 40, like barrel samples before 10 AM, sure. which are yeah. various, you know, it's yeah. like take the enamel off your teeth yes. a lot yeah. of the times. Yeah. You know, and drinking that many, you know, you have to spit. Like that's a sign of the sign of the amateur at a tasting is you see somebody who's just gulping the wine down. Yeah, they'll you know, they'll last till about nine thirty, and then it's over. Yeah, <laughs> usually that's like the packs of servers from right. restaurants who just get to go to the tasting. You know, but like you know, they don't realize that. Yeah, that's pretty grueling tasting that many wines, and also when you're going to. Every day you're going to like two wineries that you represent, mm-hmm. and every single place they're rolling out the red carpet. And it seems pretty great. But then you're like, when every meal has eight courses, yes, yes. you start to just be like, I just want a cheeseburger. <laughs> like, I just want like maybe some Triscuit crackers or something. Like, well, it just gets cool. You know, you know, the wonderful thing along those lines is that when you're in Vanitaly, of course, you, you make appointments and you have one after another. And it's like, oh, geez, it's, you know. It's 10:15. I've got to. I'm sorry, but I've got to leave because I've got to walk all the way across the fairgrounds, which is, you know, a half a mile. These yeah. fairgrounds are it's huge. Vanitaly, to give you some context, uh, is like to get to my next huge tasting. It's but annual. Yep. They will not serve you wine until someone from the winery has brought out a plate of cheese and prosciutto. That's required. Italians really don't drink red wine. Uh, unless it's an accompaniment to food. And it's very much considered a food in Italy. If you're asked to set the table in Italy and you should let it pass without putting olive oil and wine on the table, you failed at your job. So very interesting, wonderful people. Uh, the food is just knockout. I mean, just incredible. You can't say enough about uh, Italian cuisine, but, um, particularly in Italy, it's just fabulous. Uh, but uh, going to Vin Italy was a great experience. Uh, coming back here, uh, we had wonderful accounts. We were opening up uh, so many new accounts because we really hand selected and paid a lot of attention to the portfolio. And your territory was the greater Chicago land. Area. No, no, this was in Miami. Oh, this so, is in Miami. I'm so sorry, we okay. were really doing all of the state of Florida and then looking at expanding, which. Uh, for other reasons, never really happened. But uh, I mean, I would commonly go to a uh, a very prestigious retailer, or even somewhere like the Ritz in Naples, whatever, and taste them on eight or ten wines, and have the buyer look at me and say, "You know, I've never done this before, but I want a case of everything you tasted me on today." And were there any brands, in particular, in your portfolio that I would know, or? Uh, Heinrich from Austria mm-hmm. uh, did wonderful stuff. Uh, we had, we, we really kind of got a lot of the smaller producers. Uh, in Italy though, um, we really focused on quality. I mean, any particular regions in Italy you were focusing on? or That's what he had mostly in his portfolio. Super when he Tuscany? Asked me, <laughs> That's a great story you yeah. told me about the uh, about the wine. The, the, the wine one time I worked for that guy in a wine shop who didn't super Tuscany who is. asked me where super Tuscany was. Yes, yeah. 
And you no doubt said it's in your imagination. <laughs> I was like, have you checked up your ass? Because I think I saw it there. I'm not sure. Last I looked. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, smaller producers, smaller Italian, smaller Austrian producers. But the wonderful thing about, about doing a show uh, of the scale of in Italy is that you can sit down and in an afternoon you can taste 25 primitivos. And when you taste 25 primitivos back to back, it's pretty clear who the winners are. You also start to develop quite the understanding of primitivo. You absolutely do. Yeah. And you can really select the best value. So you can find a wonderful wine that is incredibly uh, reasonable, let's say, in price, and bring that back to this country. No one's ever heard of it. And yet when they taste it, they go gaga. So that was kind of our secret to doing business. Was anybody listening right uh, and just offering people wonderful examples of whatever we had. And that's the best way to intro them. If anybody wondering what Primitivo is, essentially it's Italian Zinfandel. Right. I mean, that's yes. sort of what it's, I wouldn't say it's They're exactly kissing the cousins. same. They're yeah. kissing cousins, yes. Yeah. They're incestuous. They have the same uh, parents. Uh, one grew up in southern Italy and one grew up in California. So they have... You know, they watch different TV shows. They listen listen to different radio stations. Yeah. They went to different beaches. Right. Uh, one was listening to Howard Stern. One was listening to Rush Limbaugh. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But deep down inside, they have a lot of commonality. Because yeah. yeah. I mean, which Zinfandel is more uh, synonymous with a the flavor profile of California wines. Absolutely. Whereas Primitivo is a bit more of a it's anomaly. It's an old world wine. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Primitivo is an old world version of Zinfandel, meaning that it, it shows more minerality, it shows more restraint, it still has a lot of fruit, but it's not pushing your face down into a bowl of raspberries, right. uh, and it's certainly not giving you any residual sugar yeah. or out of control alcohol levels. But you could still actually reasonably drink it without a plate of meat or cheese. But, yes, yes. But, yeah, more so than maybe yeah. like a, a really big like Alianico or something sure. like that. Yeah. yeah. So the, uh, being in the wine business was a, was a wonderful uh, thing for me. I really uh, had loved wine for many years, and uh, this was a tremendous opportunity. Uh, it became uh, more interesting to me to look at how wine was appreciated than how it was purchased eventually. And so I was more interested in the consumer of wine. So I kind of shifted my focus and paid a little bit more attention to the restaurant world. So I, I used to write uh, wine lists for restaurants and I would train the staff and that became a kind of a consulting gig that I took on. Which and we I, refer to as on-premise in the business. There you go, right. Whereas off-premise right. is your retail store. Is, is the stuff you're sneaking home. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, it goes off-premise <laughs> onto my premise. <laughs> off your premise off, onto yeah. mine. I take it that's right. the whole thing is get that off their premise and bring it into that's your right. premise. After all, they're not trying to build a collection, they're trying to sell it. That's right, so, that's exactly what you're doing. If they're smart. Now, there are wine retailers who seem to be wanting to build a collection, but uh, we all have our own crosses and burdens to yeah. bear. Well, it's know? funny, I think, when you're talking about what you're doing, you know, when you're saying that you're focusing more on restaurants and you're, you're buying wines, what I'm hearing you say is you're buying wines not so much based, like a lot of people will buy wine based on purely saleability. 
they'd be like, okay, well, the American palette will love this. Oh, look, it's got a critter on the label. Even better. Like, we love, <laughs> yeah. people love animals on labels. Right. Uh, but you're actually, you know, you're buying wines that are still going to have some integrity. And then, whereas a lot of, you know, a lot of salespeople will sell these wines, and it might be a Primitivo, it might be something, like I said, a little more obscure. And it's only the first step when you sell it to the restaurant, because if nobody there knows how to sell it, that's you're right. never going to get a reorder on it. Sure. So you're going in and you're educating the staff and getting them fired up about it. Once you get the staff on a run about one of your wines, yes. you yep. get a glass pour. Yep. That's the that's the way to do it. People, they like you. If they hate you, they're going to probably – like they're really going to go out of their way to not sell your wine. Yeah, that's right. And the, and the thing is that by getting the staff on board and, – and you get them on board by helping them. You get them on board by, first of all, educating them about the wine because restaurant staff people, unfortunately, are often not at all included. Uh, I don't know how many people, uh, wait staff I've talked to, who will recommend a wine or will give me a wine list. And I'll say, well, how many of the wines on this list have you tasted or have you had this wine you're talking about? And they'll say, well... I tasted it once three years ago, or no, gee, I really haven't tasted it. And I'm thinking, where's the wine director in this in this uh, program? Why aren't these people tasting all of these wines and becoming familiar with them? Because the wine director is busy buying spiffs from whatever distributor, getting Red Sox tickets. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, and the other thing, of course, from the from the waitstaff's perspective, is that I wanted to teach them how to turn a four top into a six top. In terms of their income, yeah. yeah. In terms of the and the, that's simply per head. by getting them to sell that second and third bottle to the table. And there's a way to do that that makes everybody happy. And sell a glass of grappa. There you and go. And sell, you know, selling a, selling somebody a glass of grappa is like selling them two desserts. It's there 16, you go. Sure. Sixteen twenty dollar glass. Sure. Like, so if, if you're a weight if you're a weight person, I can go in and say, look, I can increase your average table take by thirty percent. That they're, an, they're all ears. You know, that is an awesome way to put it, and that is the way it was put to me coming up. Like I said, I worked in restaurants for, for 25 years. I've actually, I literally, I've worked in, in 45 restaurants. I figured it out. Because I don't wow. often have three jobs That's at the same time. I've only eaten in 18. Yeah. <laughs> so good. So I, I, I kind good. of, I can tell you about all the other you know, 20. Um, but that was what was taught to me. I remember at a very early Early in my restaurant career, was this was one guy, Andrew, kind of took me aside and he was like, Look, like, you got to know this wine list, like the back of your hand. Like, you know, know this wine list so you can literally rattle something off without having to look or see. You know, he's like, You know, selling dessert wines, you know, selling bottled water instead of tap water. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're multiplying that over how many heads you're doing every night, like, that all adds up. And another thing he told me, never be afraid to like downsell somebody like $10 less for a bottle and gain their trust. Absolutely. You know, people will be looking no. at like Silver Oak and I'd be like, well, that's overpriced crap. Um, but hey, there's this Long Meadow Ranch that's sure. $30 less a bottle. And they're probably going to buy three bottles of that. Yeah, people, whereas they might have bought one bottle People of love Oak. someone who will take care of them. They really want to know that you're looking out for their best interest and not your best interest. Right. So if you can say, yes, I know that's a name you've probably heard. They spend a ton of money on PR and marketing, so no doubt you've heard the name. But here's a smaller producer, much more boutique in approach, hands-on, lovely stuff, just beautiful juice. And I, I, I guarantee you're going to like this as well or better 
and it's 25% less. And that's the beauty of, of selling wine as a server or a bartender versus selling wine wholesale is you get the instant gratification. You're pouring the wine at the table. You get to immediately see if the person, you know, you get to Likes see them enjoy the wine. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. if they don't, of right. course, if I recommend a wine like wholeheartedly and they don't like it, like normally you're not supposed to, you're not tasting wine to see if you like it or not. Right. You're right. generally it's tasting it for flaws. But yeah. if I tell you to order something you didn't order and you don't like it, I'm still going to take it you're back. On, you're on the hook. That's right. It's exactly. We're going to take it back. Sure. But I love just, yeah. And they're like, oh my God, this is, and then they, again, they'll order three bottles, especially if it's less, less costly. And, right. right. And then they're yours. You know, every time they come in the restaurant, they, they forever, ask for you. Baby. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you, you treat people well, and they will remember it, and they will appreciate you. And wine gives us so many opportunities to treat other people well, because it really is a medium of sharing. It's a medium of caring. I mean, that's become more difficult for all of us in this, this very bizarre world we currently live in of corona this and corona that, and I don't mean the beer. Uh, but when you can... When you can improve someone's experience uh, it's it's just a wonderful thing you know think about the origins of wine for a minute many thousands of years ago somewhere somehow someone picked some grapes probably intended to be eaten and was distracted who knows maybe the tribal scout came running through the encampment and said oh there's mastodon yeah <laughs> uh over the hill we've got to go hunt quick now and everyone got up and ran and you left that 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 goat skin full of grapes uh at the encampment and you went away for a week to hunt mastodon and when you came back it had transformed itself think about this itself no one was there. It had transformed itself into this entirely different substance. And, and, and carefully it was, it was tasted and it was tried. And my God, it, was, it, it gave warmth, first of all, just physical warmth from the alcohol. It gave warmth and then it gave a feeling of well-being and a feeling of camaraderie. And then you shared it. And, you know, in a time when life was brutal, this was a wonderful thing, not only to have, but to share with others. It was very much of a, a, a communal experience. So that aspect of wine is still at the heart of what wine is all about. You know, hopefully we'll reach a point shortly where we can share with each other again like that. Uh, because that really is, I think that's wine's highest calling, is to be a comforter, is to be a social lubricant, is to be uh, something that just makes you feel good and, and feel better than you were without it. And I think that that certainly brings up the point of, uh, it's always interesting with people, generally maybe a more wealthy, more wealthy people who invest in wine and they build their wine collections and they build it for value to auction it off you know, at a, at a later date. And right. I'm like, it's just such an interesting currency in that way. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. because it's something you could open and enjoy, or you're just kind of like holding, you know, it's like you're, you're buying it to sell it at a later date, which to me goes against the whole, like, I don't, but sure. again, I don't, you know, I'm not the kind of person that money isn't an object. So I don't buy unopened cases of first growth Bordeaux. 
And, you know, I, and if I did, I'd well, drink them right do, now. I and, want an invitation. Yeah, and we'd drink them in the current vintage, <laughs> right. and they'd be terrible. <laughs> we'd be better off well, buying a $10 bottle terrible, of water. They wouldn't be we, terrible. <laughs> we'd be, as they call it in the business, they call that shooting a baby in the head. Right. Uh, where, you know, it's a, it's a graphic way of describing a, what happens when you open a Bordeaux that needs 30, 35 years. But in 35 years will be incredible, <laughs> will be sublime, will be ethereal. And today is just incredibly damn good. Yeah, you know? like this is, yeah. yeah, this is, I'm not, I'm not going to kick it out of bed, <laughs> you know, for eating crackers. Is that what they say? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but technically, that's why I was saying earlier, people were like, oh, you, you're in the wine business for a long time. You must have a really amazing cellar. And I'm like, no, I'm a reckless alcoholic. And <laughs> I don't, I don't save anything. I, I remember one time somebody, the, the hardest I ever tried is this one, actually the guy with the uh, super Tuscany man, uh, somebody sold him uh, a whole bunch of uh, vintage port. I don't remember the, I actually can't remember the producer on it. It wasn't a, as common of a, but it was like one of the ones that scored like a hundred. Yeah. So, Somebody Ramos convinced Pintos him or something. Yeah, what's that? Ninety-four Ramos Pinto. Well, no, but it was like it was began with a B, but it wasn't a, it wasn't Dow's. It wasn't you know it wasn't any of the the ones that uh, Taylor right. Flag Gator. It was uh, I can't remember the the producer, but it began with a B. But it was one of those those wines that scored like a hundred points, and somebody convinced him to buy a six pack of them, and he gave them to us for Christmas presents. And, which is very generous. <laughs> that's it. And I literally held on to that bottle for a year. And that's the longest. And it was this was in wow. 2009. This was the 2008 vintage. And I, <laughs> uh, but I was so proud of myself for holding on for to holding, it for a year. You holding on to it for that long. And it, you know what? Strength. It was still delicious. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, one of the best things I've ever drank was a Smith Woodhouse um, 1977 vintage port I drank in 2012. Uh, that was one of the most transcendent well, experiences. Let me share the, the, the secret, all right? There is a secret to doing this collecting wine thing. Okay. And that is to buy more than you can possibly drink and to put drink it in six, some put away six kind of location yeah. where you forget about it. Yeah. So, yes, you buy six, you quickly scarf down two, maybe three, and then you go buy something else. Forget about this. And then you buy six of something else, and you and you take a couple, of, and you go buy two of. And something, you know what you, you do? You put it in a storage and, unit, and then the that other you can't stuff go you just to at somewhere. midnight. There you go. You put exactly. it someplace you have to drive far to, <laughs> so you can't open it when you just where have they, no bottles where they left. They charge you fifty bucks for yeah. every in and out. Well, basically, it's like we have to, where it's like a really arduous journey to get to this place. Right, right. That's how you collect <laughs> wine. That's how you deter yourself. And then. And then five, six, ten years later, you'll walk through it and you'll look at the stuff you've accumulated, and then it'll, it will just amaze and delight you. It you'll will. Say, My God, you know, I've got a bottle of that. Yeah. Well, I go oh. to whenever I hang out with people who have cellars, like it's so. I mean, I, not to sound corny, but it's so special when somebody brings up a bottle that they've had for a while. Yeah. You know, and everybody sits around, and it happens to be you know, and a lot of times for me, those experiences have been. Um, for some reason, uh, Rieslings and White Burgundies. Uh, well, they so, both last them, a long time. They, they so. do, <laughs> and people will bring them up, and everybody well. just sits around yeah. and has that collective moment of like, yeah. oh. you know, and rewarding all that patience. Absolutely. You yes. know, it's, yeah. it's something that, like I said, when you're just kind of a drunk, 
uh, it sort of eludes you <laughs> in your own setting. Like, don't come to my house and think I'm going to be like, ooh, I'm going to go pull a gem from the cellar. Right. Because that's not going to happen. I'm going to be like, hey, right. let's go next door to Rosemont. I'm going to pull a gem. This, yeah. Look, this one's 2018. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's weird. <laughs> no, 2018 would be gone, too. Um, <laughs> this is a 2023. Um, <laughs> somehow I'm drinking managed the futures. to hold on to yeah. this. I'm drinking through my futures. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, it's just, yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. That's... Which, Kind of brings me to the point of being in the wine business, which you, when did you, how long were you in the wine business before you, because you're not in the wine business currently. No, I just write. Right. I write. I yeah. mean, I consider myself in the wine business, but it's a different aspect when did you of it. Get out I of mean, the... I'm a wine educator now. Yes. You know, I've done all the, you know, the CWE and the whole thing, and, and you know, that's all fun and but Groovy, your job doesn't involve driving around with cases no, full of wine and taste my, people on it anymore. My job, if I have one, involves traveling to wine regions and availing myself of the local produce yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then coming home and writing about it yeah yes so which is i mean that's a great place to be um and especially in the manner that you write about it because it's very approachable and i think that's what especially in your uh you said i think you wrote in 2013 which right. is the beer drinker's guide to fine wine beer, a beer drinker's guide right. to knowing and enjoying fine wine right uh in which case, you, the cover is somebody uh, pouring red wine into a, a beer mug. Um, but yeah, it's like just right from the beginning there, you started out to make it, to take that stigma away from it, which I think these days has kind of largely dissipated. Absolutely, More yeah. people know, I mean, you know. When I you, think when the stigma is dissipating, and I think yeah. even those Skinny who Skinny girl Rosé took care of that. Right. You know? I th well, I think even the people who perpetuated the stigma are realizing... Yeah that in this day and age, no one cares. No one appreciates it. No one wants to hear their bullshit, you know? The fact that you have more initials after your name than I do means absolutely nothing. And uh, I mean, even, even at my level, you know, uh, having been an importer and a distributor and a certified wine educator and so forth, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I still get shit from people who have more prestigious uh, degrees, if you will, than I. And it amazes me that people are so insecure that that gives them comfort. Yeah. It's funny because it's like, yes, they are insecure. At the same, you know, it's funny at the same time, I'm like, okay, yeah, if you're a master sommelier, that is a rigorous as hell process to sure. pass that exam. But at the yeah. same time, like, when I watch a movie, which drives me insane, like Psalm. Right, and I'm like, see, this sucks all the enjoyment out of wine to me. When you like, when wine just becomes this, just you know, it's almost it's like just a course of study. Yeah, like sometimes there when you're selling no wine, you're like, I could be selling like used vacuum cleaners right now, right? And it'd be like the same, you know, it's like it's a it's an item that people enjoy, but like it's still a sales job. Yeah, and like these people are still like you know, cramming for these tests and failing and having to restart and pay exorbitant amounts of money to have some certification that's only worth any money in like four cities in the United States. You know, yeah, like you're yeah. not going to Portland, right. Maine and being like, I'm a master sommelier. No I'm one, like starting yeah, salary is no 120,000. Right. right. You know, people will no. be like, oh, that's great. Yeah. You're really cool. We'll put you in the press herald and talk about <laughs> there's a master sommelier in town. Right. But we're not right. going to pay you. Right. I, I mean, mean, if you're if you're in New York, if you're in 
San Francisco, mm. Chicago. If you're in Vegas. Yeah, Vegas. If you're in Chicago, if you're in L.A., if you're in San Francisco. Uh, Miami, exactly. Maybe Beautiful. Miami right. on a certain day of the week, whatever, you <laughs> when know. When people aren't doing uh, as much blow. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are other, there are other priorities, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I appreciate the education because I love learning. And there's so much to learn about wine, which is one of its marvelous attributes. You can never, whoever you are, you can never know everything there is to know about wine. That's that's one of the exciting and things. And that's one of the points you make in your book. There's always yeah. something more to learn. There's always something else. There's a new region being discovered. There's a new varietal that's been saved from extinction. There's a new way of vinifying. There's a new something all the time. And that's what really keeps it fresh and alive for a student of wine. And for the consumer, who doesn't give a shit about all that stuff, quite frankly, but indirectly it benefits the consumer because there's always something to try that they haven't tried before. And, you know, if you try 50 things as the average consumer, you may find four or five that you really love. And the others are okay, but if next year there's another 50 new ones you've never tried, you may find four or five other new ones that you really love. I don't think the average consumer is really into trying new things, though. Well, like that's I what I try to encourage. Earlier, that's I was, what I try to encourage. Exactly, which is great. Exploration. It's like, well, it's like if, you're, if somebody's going to be reading your work, it means that they have an interest in trying mm -hmm. something new. Generally, somebody, I call it the... Some level of curiosity. Some level of curiosity. Because I, I, I call it the three levels of success. You know what's a great word nobody uses anymore is yuppie. Uh, <laughs> yuppie is a very 80s word, but I love the word yuppie. But there's like three levels of yuppie success in the first tier when you've, you know, you've been promoted and maybe you're driving like an entry-level Lexus or whatnot. Now you're drinking Kendall Jackson Reserve Chardonnay. Uh, okay, now things have been going really well and you're up to maybe a you know, a, a, a Volvo S, S90 or something like that. You know, um, and I love Volvos. I drive Volvos. Uh, now you're on the Rombauer. So now you're like, oh, you know what? My Kendall Jackson had too much oak. I want my wine to taste like pure drawn butter. So I'm going to drink Rombauer Chardonnay now. And then you get your Maserati or your Aston Martin, and now you've graduated to Kistler Chardonnay because that's what really successful people drink. Um, and those people are exactly the opposite people that are reading your book. Because yes, they, they have are. no interest. Yes, they are, they no. literally, if I was in a restaurant waiting on that table yeah. and tried to undersell them to gain their trust, they would think I was a moron. Sure. They'd be like, this guy's telling me that something's better than Kistler. Yeah, um, well, he should be dead. Yeah, what a sap. <laughs> he's, yeah, trying what to sell me, he's trying to sell me this yeah. $40 bottle. So maybe I... he should get a real yeah. job. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, that's so true. Uh, and it, what else is interesting is that in one regard, this is a fairly new phenomenon of this, uh, this worship of labels uh, coming in the last hundred years or so. At the same time, and, and this is fascinating, it's a very ancient uh, phenomenon in that if we go all the way back, go back with me in the old time machine. Yeah. Uh, if we go all the way back, let's say to the days of Mesopotamia. Yeah, to the Fertile Crescent. Mesopotamia drank primarily beer. It was a beer-centric culture because they could grow grains 
Uh, beer is easy uh, in that the grains are easily stored. You can pull out a handful or a pocketful or whatever you need of grain and make beer at any time. Beer was used as wages for workers. It was used as currency. It was wonderful. But there was this other element, this other commodity, if you will, that was referred to in Mesopotamia as mountain beer. Now, mountain beer came from the Caucasus. It came from the high country. And it wasn't beer at all. It was wine, in fact. The difference is that this was only available sporadically. And it could only be made once a year. And it was made from a perishable source, not from a grain that could be stored all the time. So when this, this mountain beer came into Mesopotamia down the river in, in animal skins, as it was transported in those days, it was only available because of its price to the priests and to the upper classes, to the rulers and the priests. So right from the get-go, wine was economically of the upper class. Bockspoidel. Exactly. That's and the goat scrotum. to you. Bockspoidel <laughs> is the, that's, I'm sorry, it just came to me when you were talking yeah, about animals. I, against, yeah, yeah. I was saying Bockenspiel, I think that's an instrument. Or <laughs> no, Glockenspiel is an instrument. Bockspoidel <laughs> is the goat scrotum from Franken. All yeah, right. Carry on. All right. So, so the point being that wine has always been a more valuable commodity than beer because of simple laws of supply and demand. You know, if you store grain, you can make beer anytime in any quantity that you want. You make it in the closet. You, you, you exactly. Yeah. You cannot do that with wine. The grapes are ready once a year, and if you don't take advantage of them at that point in time, you're not gonna have any more raw material for another whole year. But what about when I make, I make my own wine kit? What about that? Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonder of the 20th century. Yes. Yes, it is. So, so wine has always had this uh, specialness to it, if you will. Uh, and that's really financially has been a divider between wine and beer. Now, interestingly, both beer and wine have been used ritually from the beginning. And the ritual use really involved getting drunk because getting drunk was a way to communicate with the gods. Uh, and so people would actually be designated in certain cultures to be the ones who got drunk and communicated with the gods and would bring back the message. So whether it was beer or wine, they both, they share that. And uh, if you look at, at you know, ancient records of the Assyrians and the Hittites and, and the Egyptians and so forth, beer and wine rations were used uh, as daily uh, allocations to the royal court members. They were used as payment. Uh, the pyramids were built by guys who were paid in beer. Yeah, everybody thinks that they Very were, interesting. Everybody thinks they were slaves. That built no, the they pyramids. weren't slaves they weren't at all. Slaves. They, they were, were like skilled, they were skilled workmen. Yeah, yeah that would literally were, compete with each right, other. They were masons. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they had villages where they lived, and they were fairly nice uh, homes yeah. by their standards. There was a song by a band called Blue Murder called Valley of the Kings, where they implied that everybody's a slave, and that's just bullshit. No, no, not at all, not <laughs> at all. So there's a there's an amazing history, you know. And then to carry the wine thing forward a little bit, wine also was considered 
and it wasn't considered, but was probably one of the greatest medicines throughout the history of humankind. So until uh, antibiotics were, were developed in the 1800s, uh, wine and honey were the two most commonly used items to cure wounds and illness. And of course, the Greeks had a whole pharmacopoeia based on wine, and uh, other cultures since and before have had that same pharmacopoeia. So it's very interesting, and wine was used in two ways. One, it was used specifically because the wine would heal this, and this type of wine would heal that. So you might have a heavy red wine to uh, uh, approach one problem, and you might have a lighter weight, fresher wine uh, as the antidote to another problem. But also, the second use of wine was that it was a medium to carry ground herbs and spices and so forth, which were also medicinal in effect. So it was not just that it was the wine itself, but it was what the wine did uh, in terms of transporting the medicinal effect. So very, very interesting. Uh, when we look at wine, wine is intimately involved with art, with literature, with religion, with medicine. I mean, Christ. I, I mean, with everything. <laughs> yeah, there, the, there really it's the blood is no of that one God. <laughs> with economics. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, so it, it, it's, a, it's not just another thing that flows when you pour it. You know, it, it really isn't. It's something special and something unique. And uh, even though most people drinking it never think about that stuff, if you think about it even once in your lifetime, it will enrich your experience. Well, I mean, you know, I, I love spirits as much as the next person. Um, I like beer. I don't drink beer a lot. But wine is the only, to me, I mean, the only spirit. I mean, I think tea is, is a little bit like this as well, where when you consume it, you actually, you can taste the place it came from. Mm -hmm. You know, you get that terroir and that, like, sense of what it, you know, where it's from. Like, that's why... You know, you don't see a lot of people blind tasting. I mean, do people like blind taste beer and spirits? I don't think they, no, I mean, I, the whole point with know. wine is to be like, right. is this wine made to the point where it can speak to where it's from enough that it can be identified blind uh, or totally throw somebody off because right. it's a total anomaly right. for where it's from. Um, yeah, and, it's, and that's the thing. It's like, I believe, I think I agree with you completely. And it's like, sometimes it's almost hard to say that without people getting that stigma. Like, oh, he thinks he's better than us because he's a wine no, drinker or not. not a, but it's not at all. No, like, it's just the way it is. It's it. just, yeah. you know, wine is more, it, it, you know, it takes a whole year. It, it depends on the weather that year and a lot. I mean, not, not every place. I mean, there are certainly at this point, like plenty of places that will pump out the exact same wine, regardless of what happened that year. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, the, and a lot of these are really expensive wines, things sure. like Negociant Champagne producers, you know, like, and that's for a reason. Like, people who drink Veuve Clicquot and people who drink Moet Chandon, and they, unlike, we're, we're drinking right now a Jean Vassel uh, uh, Rosé, which is a, a, a grower champagne, or farmer fizz, as uh, Terry Thies, I think, may have coined that phrase, um, which is a, a, a champagne that's made like an actual wine, where it varies vintage to vintage. Um, mm -hmm. whereas in that, so it's usually champagne or actually always champagne is, is broken down into two categories. There's negociants, which are, they buy grapes. That's like the, the bigger houses, uh, and generally the smaller ones, which are the, the growers, although there are, I guess maybe some bigger ones now that are still growing. But, mm -hmm. um, but the reasoning is it's not because they're evil, 
But it's because if somebody buys a bottle of Vuflico Yellow Label, they don't want that to taste different than the last time they had it. Sure. Like those right, profiles. They're looking, they're looking for some consistency. Dom Perignon. Yep. I mean, it, it does have a vintage. I mean, there are better vintages of that mm-hmm. wine. Mm-hmm. Well, that and Cristal, which are the easiest ways to waste your money. Um, if you, you know, those are great wines if somebody else is paying. Like mm-hmm. if somebody pours me a glass of Dom, I'm, I'm certainly not going to not drink it, but I'm never going to buy it on my own. But those wines, like people would be up in arms if all of a sudden there was like a warm vintage and it was totally different than the year before. Although at the same time, I don't think they'd even notice because I don't think people who love those wines really even know what they're drinking anyway. But uh, I don't know. It's funny the the sort of – everybody likes to think of like, you know, in, in beer, it's like the microbreweries and the macrobreweries. Right. Uh, right. You know, people who microdose and people like me who macrodose. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I really appreciate the, uh, the effort and the thought that a lot of craft brewers put into what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, they really have uh, enlightened palates around the world, but starting, it really kind of started in this country. And it was a realization that the beer in Europe was so much better than the beer in the U.S. that we were drinking this kind of pony piss, as we called it. Uh, and why weren't we drinking really good beer? So, you know, we have the craft brewers to thank for that, to really opening our eyes to the fact that, that, that beer can be as exciting and as interesting as anything else uh, when it's made right. What I find interesting, however, is that the, the dirty little secret of, of the beer world is that every craft brewery who makes wacko job stout with chocolate nibs and and pine needles and coffee and <laughs> yeah. you know whatever else they're throwing in as acorns and there, pine cones and uh, their best seller is always don't a forget lager. shamrocks and shenanigans but their best seller is a lager yeah because that's what people really like to drink. That's what people associate beer with Anheuser-Busch. in in most yeah. cases. Yeah. Well, it can be a good lager, obviously, uh, but it, that's a style that people enjoy. It's a session beer. It's uh, it's something that uh, doesn't take a lot of. Mm, I don't know. I, I I'm not sure what word to use, but I'll I'll explain it this way. I've been to a lot of beer tastings where they will have, uh, there was a beer tasting I used to go to in Portland, Oregon, where they were all wooded beers. They were all aged in wood and and others. Uh, But some of these things are fascinating for two sips. I mean, they have so yeah. much going on. Let's talk about Roush so beer. Intense, yeah. But then you can't drink the third sip. And my God, you're certainly not going to drink the fourth sip. So they're... They're interesting as, as almost as intellectual exercises more than they are as just a wonderful, lovely, drinkable beverage. Right. Yeah, at the most, they, that's why they serve them usually in tiny snifters because that's all, <laughs> you know. And it's funny, yeah, it's exactly. It's like nobody's like, you know, the American vernacular, like, hey, beer me, bro. And you're going right. to throw some <laughs> goose or like some, you know, 19% alcohol, like uh, pine tar stout at them. Right, right. They want a lager. Yeah, right. Yes. They want a Boston lager and or a Boston ale. And they'll, dr- <laughs> they'll drink a third of what you give them and say, wow, this is really cool. This is yeah. very interesting. Can we start drinking Coors now? But then they stop drinking. Yeah. Yeah. So you really have to be, a, uh, I think, attentive to that as anyone who is 
trying to introduce the public or engage the public, uh, you kind of have a responsibility. And just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. You know? I think isn't that the theme for everything? Just because you can yeah. doesn't mean you should. Yeah, yeah. I mean, neither of us have probably followed that all the time, <laughs> but... I think that's the way it is. And uh, oh, see, and you wanted me to sit in these chairs, and you've already fucked this one up, like pretty royally. <laughs> I've heard three cracks now, <laughs> and you, and you're gonna put me in this chair, and and it was for your it was for your entertainment. <laughs> I think it's time to have more wine, don't you? Uh, as far as where Stalin's from? Yes. Uh, not as familiar with Georgian wine. Okay. Georgia is the home of, is probably the oldest winemaking region in the world. More than the Levant? The, your, yes. Yeah. Yes. Winemaking probably began in the South Caucasus region. Uh, Current archaeological evidence points to Georgia. Uh, the oldest wine known in the world, uh, pure grape wine that is, uh, dates uh, to over 6,000 BC wow. in Georgia in a small area that I have had the pleasure of visiting in uh, south of Tbilisi. Yep, which is the capital, right? Which is the capital. Who's the famous? The Tamar? Is that the, the famous yes, Georgian? Tamar, yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, so the amazing thing is that they make wine uh, much as they have for thousands of years. The other amazing thing, and this just blows my mind, uh, again, but you'll have to excuse me because I do have that history. There are are jars of wine, large jars. We're talking about jars that are probably three feet tall that were vinified 8,000 years ago. And because of the size and number of these jars, we know that this wasn't the first time they'd ever made wine. So who knows when this began? 9,000 years ago? I don't know. Now, the the development of the vessel, along with the fact that it contained wine, shows us that this was a pretty mature industry even at that point. So think about winemaking being a mature industry in 6,000 BC. Hmm. That's, that's... Now that was, <laughs> I mean... that was 2,500 years, now think 2,500 years, before the development of writing prehistory. Writing was developed in Mesopotamia 2,500 years ba later. The Babylonian? No. It was ba no, Babylon was yes. on that. Yeah, yeah, okay. So Hammurabi and yes. know, laws and writing. Um, so, that's insane. 6,000 BC. I mean, what other empires were around in 6,000 BC? Was that the... Because it wasn't like... I don't know. The Greeks were not around. Uh, what age was that? Well, what? the Mesopotamians stone, were. Stone Age? Yes, it's a late Stone Age. Yeah. 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 So this is a... Do we have your glass somewhere? That's right here. This looks like yeah. a, a, is it a white wine? It is a white wine. It's actually an orange or amber wine. Oh, cool. It's a little oxidized? No, it's not, not oxidized just at orange. all. Okay. Uh, 
Oh yeah, no, it doesn't smell awesome at all. Now, what is the um, the primary indigenous grape to Georgia? Is that in this wine? Or? <clears throat> this wine is a 100% Kisi, K-I-S-I. Georgia has currently about 530, 535 indigenous varieties found nowhere else in the world. It's like Portugal. Uh, it's got like this shitload of just but, crazy grapes. Right. But this is where it began. Yeah. So wine filtered, if you will, from Georgia south and two or three thousand years later, uh, after going to Egypt, uh, went to uh, the Levant, and it was really Georgians who taught all of the Middle East how to make wine. So in the Levant, but this wine, the color is, is like tea, essentially. Well, this is, if you nose this wine, it's going to be dried leaves, walking through the forest, dried apricots, walnuts, bruised apple. I almost get a hint of uh, that Ricola, kind of. Ricola? Ricola, <laughs> like the, with the didgeridoos. Aren't that those didgeridoos in that or what? <laughs> But it has that sort of the herb, slightly herbaceous, like... So the, the, the way this is made is fascinating. Uh, I talked about those ancient uh, wine jars that stood about three feet tall. That and was those kinda, are amphorae, or they were not amphorae? No, they weren't really amphorae. They, they were just clay jars. But what happened is that those clay jars grew, and they uh, became more of a, almost the shape of an old wooden top. Remember, you know what I'm talking about with a top? where you would spin the top. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a top like that. Like okay. a dreidel. Yes. And uh, what happens is that this terracotta vessel, which is called a quivery, is buried in the ground right up to the neck. Grapes are crushed, and they're poured into the quivery. These are, this is a white wine, along with the skins and the stems and the seeds, all of it together. And then it ferments. No one touches it. There's no addition of yeast. There's no inoculation of anything. It ferments. Once it's fermented, depending on what region they're in, they may pour it off into another quivery or they may just leave it. And this is one from a region where they tend to leave it. So this gets sealed up after the fermentation. The quivery gets sealed, and they just forget about it for a year, two years, three years. And what happens is within the quivery, a couple of things happen. One is what we call a Coriolis effect. Because it's an egg-shaped thing, it starts to spin itself. The wine starts to move. And that's the theory behind uh, egg fermentation, you know, you, the concrete eggs and so forth. And the solid matter all falls to the bottom. So this color obviously comes from the skins. This is high skin contact. And that's where we get the tannins and the polyphenols that you don't normally find in a white wine. The first time I had an orange wine, it blew my mind because I'm drinking this and I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is tannic as hell. Yeah. 
This is a white wine. This doesn't make any sense. And it's not fresh fruit flavors. It's more of dried dried fruit flavors. Absolutely. So yeah, like honey and dried fruit. The Georgians are uh, a fascinating people. They have been a people. I'm gonna taste this now. Yes, please do. For a very long time, and to them, Mm. wine is a holy thing. If my eyes were closed, you wouldn't know what this was. Well, A, I would think it was a red wine. Yeah, it is. It Big is, tannins. It, it, it is tannins. But they're not harsh tannins. They're, not not they, at all. They caress your mouth. No, this is just what you'd call like a, a dry wine that, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, yeah. It's not like this wine needs more time or anything. It's just very pleasant. And the tannin is almost to me reminiscent of like a, uh, walnut skin. That is an absolutely delicious wine. So what I was saying is that in the Quevery, they also see this, their philosophy is that when the grapes are crushed and they ferment, that's giving birth to the wine. But the wine needs to be nurtured by its mother, which is Mother Earth. And so they put the wine and they back in the earth, they leave it in a terracotta vessel in the earth. I mean, it doesn't get more earthy than terracotta yeah, in the earth. It does not, yeah. So they leave it there to mature, and Mother Earth matures the wine. And the winemakers, for the most part, do absolutely nothing. And this wine is There's made in that. In no that intervention. This wine method. is made that way, yeah. yes. And if you go to Georgia and you visit people, the other amazing thing about the culture is that Georgians consider visitors to be, again, a gift from God. This is a very special thing. Visitors are to be appreciated, to be cared for. And so they'll set out this incredible feast that is called the Supra. And it's dish after dish after dish after dish after. I mean, they put dishes on top of dishes because there's no room on the table. And, And when you have eaten more than you've eaten in like four weeks, They'll say, "Oh well, the hot food will be out in a minute." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was just that, that was your uh, right. That was, <laughs> that was just get it rolling. That was your bond shot. <laughs> and then they will have big uh, glass pitchers filled with orange wine, or as they refer to it, amber wine, that goes beautifully with the food. Much more amber than orange. Yeah. Uh, this it's... winery is in the eastern region of Georgia, in a region called Kakheti. And Kakheti is, is among the most traditional of the wine-producing regions in that they let, the, they let the skin contact go on for longer and longer. Uh, in other regions, sometimes they you know, will only have skin contact for a couple of days and they take them off and do them a little differently. Although they may still make it in Quevery. Yeah. Uh, but for anyone who loves wine and is looking for something New, interesting, exotic. Yeah. Are these wines expensive in the American Georgia. market? Or? Not particularly, no. no. They're I don't, probably expensive I don't for Georgian know. wines, as they would well, say. Well, I don't, this is probably, I don't even remember, this still has a price on it. I mean, it's probably 20 bucks, yeah. no more than that. Which is a lot further than $20 is going to go from a lot of other places. 
Yeah. Not that not that price is that important. <laughs> but yeah, that that wine is is one of the that's absolutely delicious. I uh, infinitely drinkable. And I think with a variety of foods, I think it's mm -hmm. great with you know meat and cheese, or I mean, this is such a versatile wine. The tannins it can stand up. It's, it's like it can stand up to something rich and fatty. It could stand up to something spicy. You know, this is a really delicious wine. It really is. Yeah. I mean, this you could you could enjoy this with vegetarian dishes, yeah. or you could enjoy this with a steak. Yeah, think absolutely. about a think about a big juicy steak with chimichurri tannins for exactly. Yeah, yeah, that is absolutely delicious. Thank you for sharing that with me. I. Did not expect. I've, I've learned two things today. I've learned about Georgian wine, and I've learned how to saber a bottle of champagne. So All right. I think I, I feel enriched. You're on a roll. Personally, I, I feel enriched already. I don't know. I'm going to really push the envelope and get more enriched. Uh, and what's funny is that I keep. Uh, <laughs> we, it, you know, it's to me. I always know it's a good episode when I don't even have to glance at my notes because we're already working our way through so much of them <laughs> naturally, you know? Right. Um, I did have a thing in here about wine events. Uh, some of the some of the events that I've been more privileged to attend, um, I don't know, you, I'm sure you have your share of yours as well. Those ones that you're like, I can't believe I got to do that. One of them, uh, there was a restaurant called Evangeline in Portland back in 2008. I remember and, uh, that. Yeah, it was the, that was the sommelier slash bar manager there, whatever you call it. Mm -hmm. uh, I was the only one in Portland with <laughs> with a 30-page a wine list where seven of those pages were Riesling. Um, <laughs> you were one of those And the person guys. who inherited my all job right. was like, what the fuck right. do I do with all this Riesling? But uh, we had this dinner. Uh, we featured uh, Dr. Brooklyn Wolf uh, from the Faults, mm -hmm. Riesling in Germany. The Kirkenstuck, so their grand crew, mm -hmm. uh, Riesling. And we had... Uh, it was an opportunity through a distributor where we picked it up, and so it was like I think the dinner was like it was like two fifty a head, but you got to try. So from the Brooklyn Wolf, we did I think it was it was six or seven courses. They had the um, 96, 97, 98, 01, 03, 04, 05 vintage of that wine. Uh, people who while they were just showing up, we were pouring this Georg Breuer nineteen ninety one Riesling sect out of Magnums. It's like a sparkling. Uh, and then we finished with a 1986 Borken Wolf uh, beer and Auschleza. Uh, and that was one of those things where you, you experienced it and you were like, you were talking earlier about people wanting to try new things. And mm -hmm. just anybody who went to that dinner, you could tell that because when you get that high on a price tag, you're going to inevitably get a lot of the Silver Oak crowd. True. Like I'm going to a pricey wine dinner. Um, where's my Cabernet, you know, right, you know? Right. like that's what I do. But even those people, you could tell who are normally those people mm -hmm. were so floored by these Rieslings. Like people don't ever go to dinners where they drink 12 white wines. No, and no, no red wines. No, absolutely. You know, You're and right. just to see the looks on people's faces mm -hmm. when they, and the food was spot on. Um, so, you know, nights like that are what make me appreciate the wine business and that, that can tend to make me kind of jaded when I'm, you know, every day drinking seven, eight, you know, coming home with seven, eight open bottles of wine, finishing them all, drinking samples. Like when you're just opening $40 bottles of wine at two in the morning and you start to take everything for granted, all the wine you're drinking. And then when you have to go back to being a regular person, it's the worst. <laughs> like, wow, that's expensive to live like oh, I was I living. When I can't just, you know, when I can't just get yeah. high on my own supply, this sucks. Um, but I brought for you, one of the things I brought I thought you might think was interesting is we used to do these parties called Deathmatch. 
Uh, and they were these, this is the guy I was, I was living with this guy, John, uh, from 2006 to 12. And we had these crazy theme parties and, uh, Start out with a foie gras death match, then a venison. We like slaughtered two whole deer. The first one we had ten lobes of foie gras. We broke down to like seven cooks and had thirty people over. You know, the next nice. one we broke down two whole deer. Anyway, the last one we ever did was the funeral. It was your last meal on earth, and that's the wine list from it. Uh, and then also our death match Japanese. The sake list is on there. But I thought you'd appreciate the documentation of all the wines at this one party. There was seventy people or eighty people that came over. Uh, we had eighteen chefs doing eighteen courses. Uh, one of the courses involved me in my underwear wearing a bacon kerchief with a hot for teacher blaring, um, <laughs> squirting bottles. There was like these two girls dressed like schoolgirls, and they would put uh, tomato, bacon, and lettuce in people's mouth. And I had these squeeze bottles wrapped in porn filled with mayo, and I'd pour, squeeze that in your mouth. It was like a deconstructed BLT. Uh, <laughs> but that was that part. Yeah the, yeah, the party ended with this guy who has a prosthetic leg at 3 in the morning. Uh, we took his leg off, and we filled it with absinthe, and we were just handing it around the kitchen, drinking out of his leg. Uh, I remember him just sitting there in the kitchen, missing his leg, uh, sweaty. Uh, <laughs> it was like one of those really dark moments that I was like so decadent. And, you know, but that's the, that's the wine list from that party. Um, well, I love the fact that you started with a Vino Verde. Yeah, we just got a bunch of cases yeah, of that great. and then moved straight into yeah. the Magnums of 1990 P.J. LaFleur. Yeah, the Franciacorta, nice. Uh, nice little... Uh, Amontillado from Lustau. Yeah, one that of their, was one the, of their better ones. That actually. was uh, to specifically go with um, uh, my roommate's course was a, a leg of Hamon um, Diabarico de Beota, a whole mm -hmm. leg. We had the actually importer. People would die, be, be like, want to come to these parties so bad. This guy gave us a $2,500 leg of ham so he could come to the party. Uh, so we did the ham with that sherry wow. and some. Um, wow. And some. Nice. Uh, like Marcona. Marcona, yes. Thank Jesus. you. Yes. Yeah, so it was like you got a glass of sherry, yep. a few pieces of ham, and some Marcona almonds. That was nice. his course, and Very it was nice. amazing. Yep. Again, turning people on to dry sherries, who, which most people have not. Most people, you know, they're... Well, dry sherries, I mean, it's a wonderful thing. It, it really is. Most is. people's experience yeah. with sherry ends at Taylor, unfortunately. Yeah, no. Or And Harvey's you know what? Crystal cream. Restaurants have no idea how to sell sherry whatsoever. Sherry is always listed on the dessert menu. <laughs> Yes. What the hell is wrong with yeah, these like people? Like Pedro Jimenez, sure, it's, but not like yeah, like dry yeah. sherry. That's that's it's almost yeah. like we we're talking the, earlier the about fino selling on the dessert menu. What no. the hell am I going to do with people it at like that this point is salty? Why am I having this with my like creme brulee? Um, it's another, it's like the reverse of what we were talking earlier about you know upselling and selling dessert wines. Like before you even you know before the menus even left the table, if you get glasses of sherry down Absolutely. for everybody, sure, yeah, you're gonna you know like these are just ways like. There's ways to be a professional server. Yeah. Even if your behavior isn't super professional, <laughs> there are ways to do I it. I see right. that you had some Musar there, 99 Musar. We did. We actually, had, I think we had other. Do we have, was 99 the only vintage we had? Uh, the only one I'm coming across so far. Yeah. My room, the, the, the guy I live with, he repped uh, that wine. So we had Musar, we had Hoshar, uh, which is a great. Well, Musar is one of our favorites. Patty and I once got, uh, we were gifted. A bottle of 90, no, of uh, 63. I love how the library vintages are still widely available of Musar 63. in general. Yes. Yeah. The, well, because he, he, he released things very late. He anyway. passed away, right? Yes, he did. Yeah. Serge, yeah. Gaston, yeah. the son, now runs the show. And that's the Hoshar. But we got a 63 Musar, and we drank that in Fort Lauderdale. We took it to a restaurant with us. 
and pour that out, and it was a pale salmon color. Interesting. Like a very and old... And it wasn't the white. Old, no, the no, white is what? No, uni, uni Blanc? No, is that it wasn't the, the white. No, the, well, the, no, the white is Marijuana and Obadiah. Yeah, not Uni Blanc, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But the white is a very oxidized style of the Moussard, uh, right? Not so much, or is it more no, like this? No, not so much. No, 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 it's, it's not. Okay. No. We poured this, and it was the red, which is Cab and Cinso predominantly and whatever else he decided to throw in that year. And it was so pale, it was like an old style uh, burgundy. You know, it was like salmon colored. Yeah. This was a 63, remember, and we opened this in probably 95, 99. And took a sip of that, and it was like a riot in your mouth. Yeah. I mean, the police were called in. Yeah. There were billy clubs swinging <laughs> Involved, around. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. unbelievable. It was a, a, just a marvelous, marvelous thing. Yeah, it's like it's almost like if you want to drink a wow. If if you want to drink a a five hundred dollar Bordeaux, spend eighty dollars on a uh, bottle of Musar. Absolutely. And you're gonna get just as much complexity. And you're gonna have just as good of a time. I have to admit, sure. we were looking at stuff today. Uh, I almost got moose. I was looking at things too. Musar was also something else eyeballing. I couldn't. I didn't, couldn't decide well, what to bring today. Well, we have. Uh, someday we'll have to do a, a do a vertical because we have like five. You twist my we arm have five we'll vintages. Do a vertical of Musar. Five vintages of Musar. You could. I was like I was saying earlier. It's a great wine because they they like they they do they they held on to it. Yes. And you can generally get the library. Right. It's almost like yeah. Bertani with their Amarone. Yeah. Like you can get the old the, stuff. I know? think the latest release of Musar could be like 09. I mean, they just hold on to this shit, yeah. you know? They're like the Spaniards it's in that like, regard. Or it's like, what's the other, the Simard, right? Don't they release their wines, Chateau Simard? Like, I'm well, not that usually familiar with them, Usually they're vintages no. in Bordeaux. Yeah. They're, they're always like, you're drinking like the 95 and like 2000. All right, yeah. But... Yeah, I thought you'd appreciate that list. Some of the Absolutely. ones on there like that, especially like the, we shot a couple babies in the head. One in particular was the Hanus, the Alejandro Fernandez. I like the Bollinger Grand Ani. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That was absolutely delicious. Duval. So what did you think of the Duval Shiraz? Do you remember it? I don't even think I remember that one. Okay. Well, remember, Duval, you know, was the winemaker for... Uh, uh, Grange for many years. Ah, for and then he went out yeah. on his own. Yes. Okay, I do remember yes. that one. Yes, that one yes. was delicious. Actually, yes. I mean, obviously, that, that's a it's a it's a much more affordable option. Grange yes. is really interesting because Grange. Um, funny thing, funny story about that. Uh, Penfold's Grange. So that's it was sort of like up until, you know, Australian wine sort of came to prevalent in like two thousand five, whatever. That's so that was like that was back when you go to a store and the shelf. The New Zealand and Australian shelf were actually separate uh, back in the mid-aughts. You know, there was like uh, two shelves of Australian wine and one shelf of New Zealand. But the original uh, producers that were, were big were, were Penfolds, Jarenberg, and uh, who was it? Torbreck, I think, would be one of the, the big ones. But the Penfolds Grange. So that was one that sort of put Australian wine on the map. Absolutely. And That's I, their I, number one drop to this day. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I was at this person's house, One actually one of the investors from Evangeline, right? Had us over at his house one night when we were planning this restaurant. And he had, he's one of the people with the crazy prestige wine cellar. Mm -hmm. And so we're like four or five bottles in. And he goes, Joe, go down and pick any bottle you want out. 
And I was like, uh, okay. And literally, the, like, the next thing after this bottle was going to be, we had a 1945 bottle of Chivas Regal, <laughs> uh, which had, like, no heat and was delicious. Um, so that strategy, I'm like, he had lots of burgundy and a lot of really cool stuff, but I'm like, I'm like, okay, we're all getting there. There's not really any food involved anymore. And he had, I grabbed, it was the last vintage where they were still calling it, the Grange was the, the Hermitage, when yeah. that was still on the label. I All think right. it was the 1985 uh, or 6 mm. or 94. Yeah. I don't remember what it was, but it was what it was the, I can't remember now, but that was the bottle I grabbed. And it was absolutely not like any Shiraz I'd ever tasted. It tasted like a board. I mean, it, would, it had that sort Marvelous of, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, although they called it Hermitage, but mm -hmm. it was like just such a well-made wine. I haven't had Grange. It's like one of those wines like Opus One. Like I haven't had an Opus One for, I don't even know what that's like anymore. I don't know if they still even make it. I tasted them back when I was working at restaurants in Chicago where I was drinking Harlan and all these wines that people would right, order, right. Dominus, and you know, they, they don't really care. They just buy it because it's expensive. Uh, Opus has slipped a lot. I haven't. I think no. the '98 vintage was the last one I tasted yeah. of Opus, yeah. and I feel like Grange is like one of those wines where I'm like, back when it was when it earned its its stars, it was a, a brilliant wine, um, but I couldn't tell you what it's like. Well, anymore. you were talking about those great tasting experiences that you have when you're in the business. Uh, one that I recall was uh, this took place in Miami. I think it was probably around 2000. And I was at a wine show, a Miami wine show actually, and there was a guy there from Australia. And so, you know, we started chatting a bit and uh, he was a pretty engaging guy and had some interesting stuff. And he said, well, look, I'm, I'm having a little private tasting back in my hotel room after I'd like you to come. So I said, great, you know, you mind if I call my wife and have her join us? And he says, nah, bring whoever you want, that's cool. So I called up a friend who owned a wine shop uh, because I was 40 miles from home. And I said, drive by and pick Patty up and come on down here. We're gonna drink some shit. Yeah, I'm <laughs> gonna give it some shit. So <laughs> we're gonna drink some shit, baby. Can I pour you a little more of a... Uh, sure. What occurred was one of the most remarkable tastings that I have ever been part of. Uh, we started with a 64 Grange. Then we went to a 67 Grange. When did they start making that wine? I don't know. Well, I don't yeah, know. I didn't know they, had, they, they went back that far. Um, and well, they've been making it for a while, yeah. Uh, so we did uh, four vintages of Grange. And he said, okay, well, that's fine for the history. Now we'll get down to drinking the real stuff. <laughs> uh, and we went through, I, I'm not sure, have you ever had Run Rig? That's Torbrick. Yeah. I have not. That's Torbrick's top drop. Top line, yeah. And it will fucking make your socks roll up and down on your legs while you're sitting there, even if you don't wear socks like me. <laughs> I mean, I've seen it. it. Usually it retails for about $250, $200. Yeah, bucks. yeah, yeah. A, yeah. It, and it is just marvelous stuff. Uh, Elderton uh, Command, yep, Command Shiraz. Shiraz. Yep. Um, 
They also uh, do the Tantalus, which is a more affordable yes. Shiraz, which is a nice elder. But we didn't have any of the affordable stuff. No, this wasn't so, about affordable. This no, is about ridiculous this was shit. about just wowing you. And Amon Ra? Um, uh, no, this was before uh, they were doing Amon Ra, yeah. I think. I think. I'm not sure when Amon Ra started. The Clarendon Hills, but, that's the only yeah, other, right. the big boys. Two Hands, all the eras and Well, Aramones. Two Hands and uh, Moon, uh, uh, who was it? I can't remember the name. Moon, Moon something. Anyway, we had six or eight incredible. I mean, just the best Shiraz you've ever had, followed by the best Shiraz you've now ever had. <laughs> I mean, I'm followed by the jealous. best one yeah, you've that, now ever had. Right. And then he pulls out a Pinot from Australia. Yeah, and we laughed at him. Was it from Margaret River? Or was we it from... said, "What the hell are you doing? What are you crazy? What are you doing?" It was a Mount Mary, and that motherfucker stood up. I mean, obviously you trust this guy at this and, point. And, you know he's not and fucking And made around. us yeah. sing. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it was incredible to Ugh. drink a Pinot after these Shiraz. And, and, and then we went back to more Shiraz. Um, it was a fabulous tasting. It went on until, I don't know, three or four in the morning. I mean, Shiraz is such an easy wine. And, I mean, So then, then we're leaving, and he says, Jim, Jim, come over here. He says, look, we've got a lot of half-empty bottles here. I'd like you to take some home. <laughs> You're like, you know what, maybe you should just cook with those. <laughs> so I took home a 64 and a 67 Grange, yep. and we didn't drink them because in three days my brother was coming to visit. Mm -hmm. They weren't even corked. They weren't even corked. They were just or in a box. Oh, oh, you just left them open. Left them open Straight in a up. box. Wow. My brother came in three days later, and we knocked them off, and they were just magnificent. I mean, it was, it was yeah. just one of those things that, you know how sometimes with wine things happen that aren't supposed to? Yeah. Like you get a bottle where the eulogy is, is below the shoulder, yeah. and you go, oh, geez, this is, gonna, this is gone, yeah. and then you pour it, and it's the most fabulous thing you've had in yeah. you know, six months. You know, it was one of those experiences. And especially also in revisiting wines like that, you know, talking to like when I was in Champagne, talking to um, Jean-Baptiste Jean -Baptiste, uh, Geoffroy, uh, who's Rene Geoffroy's son, uh, you know, talking about how his vintage champagnes, you know, he likes to decant them for like a really long time before he drinks them, which most people in Champagne normally think about. Um, and I did no, that. People, I bought a lot of his older stuff, and I and I and people I, think decanting champagne is insane. Is insane. And I drank it, and it was out of like we did out of a regular <laughs> stem. But then another time, I, I revisited a wine like. Three days later, I did a, in the wine business, you do what's called a ride with, where a winemaker or a rep will come and you drive mm -hmm. them around to all your accounts. And I've had a lot of really great ones. And one of the most memorable was Manuel Muga, um, oh. the winemaker, one of the owners of yeah. Muga in, in Spain, in Rioja. And we had like... Which, by the way, Spanish wine aficionados is pronounced Muga because yeah. he is not Spanish. Right. Not, it is not Muha. Not Muha. So not at all. Yes, no, please, it's not. Please give him the Muga. G. And I and I yeah. know because I, I I hung out with him all day and we got really drunk. And um, but we had like ten wines. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had like obviously the base and the the reserve, but we had all these like crazy high end Muga wines that like and when you do a ride with, so you 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 you're usually going to pick up the guy at the airport or. Or wherever it is, hotel in the morning, you can go to your counts. So beforehand, you need to you need to secure all the samples 
that you're going to be tasting with people throughout the day, right? So in this case, I have 10 bottles, and I have, again, I have to taste these at like 8 in the morning to make sure none of them are corked. Because if they're corked, i got to go to the warehouse and, get, and pull more bottles uh, so we're not riding. So we're riding around with the full line. But these are wines that are literally at like, at 8.30 in the morning, like the enamel of my teeth felt like it was getting torn <laughs> off out of my mouth. It was just like crazy, yeah. you know, yeah. trying to taste these things. I'm like, they're not, there's nothing wrong with them. But oh my God, like, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and yeah. these are like the, you know, on the really high end, you know. Mm -hmm. But, and those are wines that I was like, I'll bet if I just focus on drinking my other samples <laughs> and I leave these guys and try them in three days, and I did, and they were like, yeah. I yeah. mean, and I guess that's a wine that makes it, that's what makes it age worthy, essentially. Well, you know, that's a wonderful thing because, up. you know, people talk about age worthy wines and, and yet, you know, you've had the same experience. I, I'm willing to bet that you've got this big, big wine, this important wine yeah. and you open it up and uh, yeah, exactly a prestige wine and you have it and it's, it's really quite wonderful. Yeah. And then you put it aside, you leave it on the counter, you know, that night because you're drinking other things. Yeah. And you come back to it the next day and it's gone. I mean, it's yeah. like, whoa, what happened that to this baby? That. You yeah. know, yeah, I mean, you know, get it while it's hot because it's not going to last. And then, and then sometimes just the opposite happens as, as with the Muga, obviously. Right. I mean, and you can usually tell Grange, with the wine you know? and, and what it's like to start, you know, I'm not going to open a... A delicate, you know, probably not, probably not even like a Bordeaux or a Burgundy and leave it for three days and come back. But these wines are so like just, just big. I guess yeah, yeah. the word big wine is like a, you know, right. what is a big wine really? Yeah, what's but, a big wine? but we still use the term is that like a strong wine. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> this is a big cab, and you're like, I mean, I know that word is kind of a nothing word, but we still use it. I also love when you open a prestige bottle with people, and it's it's corked. And nobody wants to admit it. Because, <laughs> like, one guy brought it. He was uh, so excited about it. I and he spent you, so much money on it. I'm and everybody's just like, oh, no, it's, oh, this is really, really no. good. I'm, I'm the asshole who goes like, right to it. You have saying, to start with a question. You can't say, this dude, is corked. I hate to tell you, you this. You have to go, but... um, is it? Is this wine a, a little corky or am I just, you have to, like, approach it softly. You can't just come out and be like, this wine's corked. Because you have to get it in everybody's head. Because everybody's thinking the same thing, but you're like, ah. Even if you just go, ah, like that, everybody yeah, knows what's yeah, coming next. Yeah. <laughs> like, is this? That's so disappointing when that happens. You know, and that's why. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, you know, the other thing. And it's not, a, it's not like a flawed in no, the, the winemaker. It's just something that happens no, it, with wine. It, it, it doesn't mean the guy who brought it's an asshole. Or that he's an asshole. Which is, no, yeah. which is the immediate take. Right. You know, that this everyone buys flawed wine. Uh, <laughs> Joey brought a cork wine. What an asshole. Yeah. Joey didn't know the wine oh was corked. Joey it's a beautiful no wine. Joey wanted you know? to drink as much as you did. That's right. Joey, even yeah. more than you. He wanted yeah. to show off. He wanted. Joey he wanted didn't want to have to resort to El Himador and soda like he is right now, but he's doing it because he got here. He came here to drink. And that's absolutely. What he's do. Yeah. You, so you got to give Joey, you know, props. And it's just. But you know, there's that moment. The nobody, nobody, because it's always like, I love it. I love my favorite thing. <laughs> the first thing about, I mean, this will blow off. Yeah, <laughs> this will right, probably just right. swirl. It'll yeah. it'll blow off. It'll well, blow this will this TCA will blow right <laughs> off. All this cork's just gonna blow off. Just give yeah. it a second to, uh, <laughs> and it'll come around. And everybody's like, nope, it's actually corkier now <laughs> than it was. 
five minutes ago. We still have more wine that's to called drink. A good, well, we're going to drink. Don't worry. Okay. Um, that's, so the other thing, he has to edit us. So. Well, yeah, but you're paying him. I'm not. I don't care. But Chris, <laughs> I'm paying you in knowledge right now, and that should be and that should be enough for anybody. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> paying you with being your leading here. Tell his landlord. Knowing so much more. <laughs> tell his mortgage company that you knew. Hey, you look, know, I don't have the mortgage payment, but yeah. I am so much smarter than yeah. I was a month ago. I want to. I yeah. want to finish with some stories, and right. I want. I'm going to tell a story, and then I'm going to have you tell a story that I'm going to direct you to tell. But <laughs> sometimes okay. wine can open doors for you. And one of the cases was, uh, for me, I was in France in uh, 2011. I was in Paris one night. Uh, my friend Joel and I were having dinner at a restaurant called Comptoir du Sud. Um, really great restaurant. Uh, there was a line to get in. I don't remember if it was a weekend or not. And it was raining, right? So we get there. I don't remember if we had a reservation or not. I don't remember the whole situation. But regardless, they kind of clocked us for what we were, you know, Americans, whatever. And they sit me at this table outside where there's an umbrella, but literally the water is like the rain's pouring right off the umbrella, right down my ass crack. <laughs> like, you know, like we're outside the end of the patio. Right. And I was like, fuck. And I go, Joel, watch, watch this. So the server comes over. And I order a bottle of uh, Didier Dagano per song. Oh, wow. <laughs> Aren't you special? And it was like that scene in Goodfellas. They brought up a table for us from downstairs and set it in the middle of the dining room that wasn't there. It's like, would you like a more comfortable table inside? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, actually, I would love that, you know? <laughs> so we drank that, and I got a bottle of Chateau Reyes, uh Chateau nice. as well. Because yeah. yeah. uh, at that point... American Express is just such a great thing because, you know, the end of the month will never come. So just spend <laughs> and spend and spend. And you'll never have to pay it back That's because right. it's just free money. It's like Monopoly money. Uh, so we were just going after it. But it was amazing when I was like, okay. Well, A, I mean, Didier Dagano, he died in a, in a plane, plane crash. crash yeah. uh, he is a, a iconic um, Loire Valley winemaker. Sure. I mean, just, just – and Celex is his most famous, but – the Prasong was the one that they had on the list. And so ordering a bottle like that, it's not also it's not the same as ordering a bottle of like like Silver Oak or Cristal where you're just being a jabroni and you're throwing money around. You're ordering a bottle that's A, expensive, but also showing that you appreciate. Showing, showing that yeah. you understand. And also something. when people bring up a table for you from the basement, promptly pour your server a glass of the wine no matter how yes. expensive it is yep. and continue to do that, uh, which we did. But I, I love that. Like that was just like the... I just knew, you know, like your yeah. wine selection and does matter. Uh, in Paris, ah, okay. in 2011, in Comptoir du Sud. So your your selection. I mean, you talk about how to you know negotiate a wine list, mm -hmm. and you know, and that's you know it's it, 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 the pressure isn't necessarily always on, but when you're getting rained on sometimes. <laughs> and you know a certain wine selection is going to get you it's inside. It's the discomfort that's on. Just, right. just go for it. So that was yeah. that. Um, so I, you know, it's important for you to know that know some like kind of cult classic producers uh, because a you get to drink their wine, which is amazing, and b people are happy to accommodate you, right. and you drink right. they drink right. with you. Well, now I also true. people that? look at you with a, a a little more friendly eye. Totally, they're like yes. you, most American tourists. You know, they looked at me with a different eye than somebody who was like, can I get a Chateau Margot? Yeah. Like, or, or, you got any Kendall Jackson oh, on hey, the list? 
Bro, Cage. I'm sorry. He doesn't understand English. KJ, it's Kendall Jackson. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's not familiar with our language. He's yeah. crazy. Um, now, you spent all this time in Florida, and I started to talk about it before we started recording. And actually, I'm going to end with this because I literally could talk with you about wine for eight hours. And if this podcast were an eight-hour podcast, we'd be good to go. But yeah. I want you to talk about... I'm going to tell you a quick, I'm going to give you a quick reason about Burns Steakhouse in Tampa. Mm. Uh, because one time my friend Jonathan and I, he is a, he was a wine importer. He wanted people I did the ride with. Like somebody who every time he came to town, you know, it was like a $500 lunch at Miyake in Portland. Like we just both were on the very much same page as far as what being in the right. wine business is for, right? Mm. So one day he's like, hey, we're going to fly down to Tampa for dinner and come back. And that was what we were going to do. Like literally we were going to like, Fly from Maine to Port uh, to New York to Tampa, then come back to New York City for yep. the night and hang out. Yep. But go for dinner to this place, Burn Steakhouse. Well, you wouldn't have been the first people to do that. It, it, well, exactly. It didn't you know? I was th- I thought it was awesome to say. Unfortunately, in New York, all the flights got really messed up, and we couldn't get out of New York, and we ended up partying yeah. in New York for the night, not making it to Burn Steakhouse. And even though I had an amazing time, I went to Terroir, which is my favorite wine bar. Uh, which probably you live in New York, I bet at this point it's probably like, oh, of course it is. But I like it. I think it's great. And uh, so, Burn Steakhouse. What is it about it? Burn Steakhouse is a uh, is an institution, deservedly so. Uh, it is probably home to the greatest wine collection, the greatest restaurant wine collection in the United States. Uh, the last I knew, the last time I was there. The collection was over a million bottles. Isn't it like a hangar and they keep this wine in? Like oh, yeah. Like, they keep it across the street. Yeah. They, yeah, <laughs> yeah. they can't fit it in there. Yeah. Although they do have a cellar in the... Uh, in fact, on my on my iPhone, I have a picture of the cellar, which is crazy. It, you know, it's multi-leveled, and they've got, you know, ladders to get up and down and so forth. But it was, it was developed by... Uh, this guy who just loved wine. And he would go out and buy wines um, for his steak restaurant. And the thing was that he had a marvelous attitude, the attitude being that, all right, look, I've paid for the wine, and I've determined how much I need in terms of profit. And he would set it at that price, and it would never change. So if you know how to work the Burns list, if you go, and the list is like looking at an encyclopedia, obviously, and that's only part of the list, so you can always ask for more. But you can go through there and find marvelous things at incredible prices. I mean, you can find find 82 Bordeaux for $60 or $70 a bottle. Uh, To this day, I mean, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. His son... Uh, now runs the place, and they've got a little place next door called Burnside, and they've got this and that. Uh, But when you go in, it's almost a letdown because it's an old, somewhat tired building, to be honest with you. And it's broken up into little rooms. And and the servers were different colored like ties based on how long they've worked there. Yeah, they've got this whole thing going. It's, <laughs> it's really very old school. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so the fun thing is you go in and you sit down, and they take you to this room that probably has no more than 10 tables in this room. And they've got, you know, who knows how many rooms they've got, maybe 30 rooms like this. 
but uh, you, you look through the list, and I mean, I lived in Miami at the time, so I had a lot of friends who would just go over. We'd just drive across the state, which is no big deal, and go to Burns and just pick the list. I mean, it was, it was remarkable. Yeah. So you'd get a good steak. Right. You know, not the greatest steak uh, you ever had in your life. But it's, the wine. <laughs> it, it's not like going to, uh, you know, Chicago Cut and, or something or Prime and Provision in Chicago. It, 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 you know, it's not that quality, but it was very good. But the wine was insane. So you would have these marvelous wines, and you could get two or three fabulous bottles. Then the really interesting thing is that oh, after— is dessert? Yes. Yeah. After the meal, yeah. if you're going to have dessert, they take you to a whole nother floor. <laughs> yeah. Not another room, but a whole nother floor. Yeah. And you walk onto this floor, which is, I don't know, the it's the top floor. It's the third or fourth floor, whatever it may be. And the floor is composed of these little rooms uh, that are kind of 1950s futuristic aviation pods or capsules made out of bent plywood a la Danish modern furniture. It has nothing to do with anything. It's just insane. So you go sit down and they, and they close these doors and then they open these doors. It's really crazy. And, they, and again, the wine list intrudes. The ports. Oh my God, the dessert... The dessert, the bonules, uh, yeah. you know, the, the PXs, whatever it is you're into. But what I discovered there, and most people will probably never have heard of this, is that I discovered Black Maple Hill bourbon. That was the first place I ever had it. Black Maple Hill was a company that was around. I don't even know if they still exist. And they would go around to all the bourbon producers. This was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And they'd say, look, I know you've got a barrel or two of something that's just remarkable, but you know that all you're going to do is mix it in with everything else because that's what you're doing. So instead of mixing it in with everything else, which is going to dilute it and just make it part of your overall thing, I'm willing to pay you twice what that's worth for those single barrels. It's all and different producers. All different producers. So they gut all this stuff, all these incredible like four roses primo barrels yeah. from everybody, and they, and they bottled it. And they had bourbons, they had uh, rye, uh, they had stuff 16-year, 23-year, I mean, unbelievable stuff. Under and it their, was fairly reasonably label. priced. It was all labeled Black Maple Hill. Like the 90-plus of bourbon. Oh. <laughs> Not like that at all. <laughs> no, it was this phenomenon that existed. And when I first moved to Chicago in 2010, you could still get a fair amount of this stuff. But I haven't seen it in probably seven or eight years. I haven't seen any of it around. But if anyone sees yeah, Black Maple sees Hill this. and it's a bourbon or a rye, yeah. grab it and give me a call. Yeah, send us uh, and send a, a, a stamped envelope with, with proofs of purchase. Uh, <laughs> you can mail it in here and you'll get right. your very own Refrigerator Perry, G.I. Joe, and we'll send that to Look, you. we'll trade you a we'll bottle of KJ <laughs> Reserve yeah. Listen, Chardonnay. this is the reserve, okay? This is when Jesse Jackson just... 
Jesse, I don't know what he goes by. I just call him <laughs> J. Joe. Um, this is when J. When uh, you know, this is his reserve stuff. I mean, you know. Yeah, absolutely. This is yeah. like when, you know, this isn't Woodbridge we're talking about. <laughs> this isn't, we're not, you know, this isn't chicken shit Chardonnay. This is the Kendall Jackson Reserve. So to bring it back around, I mean, Burns Steakhouse <laughs> How is we a wonderful experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it really is. If yeah. anyone's in South Florida... Uh, or planning a trip to South Florida. Uh, you know, again, with COVID, I have no idea what the hell's going on. But, you know, shoot them an email, give them a phone call, see what the story is, because it's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime experience, even if you go 15 times. Uh, it's definitely worth your while. Uh, one of the great iconic restaurants in the United States and certainly one of the great iconic wine lists in the United States. It sounds like the wine cellar would be a great place to be quarantined, so good good for them. Yes, it would. <laughs> well, I think that that's a perfect place to wrap it up because we're telling you to go to Tampa for dinner. And, you know, <laughs> we're doing you a favor here. I mean, outside of, you know, the reality of the current situation, but remember that. But I want to thank uh, Jim Lochran for being here with us today. Uh, I feel enriched. Do you feel enriched? I feel happy all over. Yeah. <laughs> that, see, that's that's kind of what we're going for. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, now, so the two, the 15 minutes. Yeah, the 15-minute guides. 15-minute guide to, to red, red wine. wine. When, when are they going guide. to be published? So 15-minute guide to red wine, everything you need to know but we never had a chance to ask. So it's really... These are wonderful places to begin your wine education. This is not highfalutin, 400 pages of charts and graphs. And I love to use the term highfalutin. You know, Nobody says that. I love that. There you go. <laughs> this is just love and enjoy what's in your glass. And that's all these are about. Uh, the price is going to knock you out because it barely exists. So we're looking at release dates in mid-October right now. Uh, again, go to Amazon to start. Uh, these are ebooks. They'll come out as ebooks to begin with. 15 uh, minute guide to uh, red wine, 15 minute guide to white wine, and then we've got a couple in in the works right now. Other 15 minute guides. So uh, it's just fun. It's enjoyable for those of you who like wine occasionally, but don't really know a lot about it, but would like to know a little more than you know now. This is really the perfect place to start and just be relaxed. And just realize that wine is about fun and love and sharing and appreciation. And I love that you cover all those things, but you don't like dumb it down. Like you're still no, talking about no, a Sirtko and all. Mathia. And, you know, like you're talking about like really delicious varietals. We're talking like grown-ups. Like, like grown this yes. isn't like a we're holding your hand. No, not at all. But it's very accessible. And oh, I highly recommend it. Uh, I'm Joe Riccio. This is the Food Coma Podcast. Yeah.